Well, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us. We realize on uh, Sunday morning you have a lot of choices these days, and we just appreciate that you've tuned in to uh, join with worship and hearing God's word this morning. I'd like to begin today with a story that I just want to mention right up front. I realize is kind of unusual. It might seem like a strange story, although there are examples of what I'm going to talk about here in the Gospels in the book of Acts. Several years ago, I received a phone call from a student from our college ministry. He explained that he and some of the other students in our ministry were down at the student union of the university called the Mountain Lair. For those that aren't familiar with a student union, it's basically a hangout place for college students where they can study and there are restaurants and things like that. Anyway, these students were down at the Mountain Lair and they encountered this woman who claimed that she had some demons inside of her. And he was wondering what to do, wondering if I could come down, because he said, I just don't know what to do in this situation. And so I said, well, sure, I'll come down um, and meet with you. Uh, I hung up the phone, I immediately thought, though, I don't know what to do either. I mean, this isn't a common occurrence, especially in our culture, in other cultures, it's a little bit more prevalent, but not in our culture. I think Satan has done a good job of convincing us that he doesn't even exist. But I didn't know what to do, but I jumped in the car and I drove down to the mountain lair, the student union, and I, I found our group and, and I began to ask this young woman some questions. Uh, she was dressed from head to toe in black. She had on black makeup and, and fingernails were black. And around her neck, she had these chains and various occultic symbols. In addition, she had rings that had symbols on them as well. And as I began to ask some questions about her story, I became convinced that she likely did indeed have some demons within her. And so we surrounded her and we began to pray for her. We placed our hands gently on her shoulder, just united together in prayer. And my prayer went something along the lines of, dear God, I know that you are greater than the devil. And I want to ask you to remove any demonic presence from this woman in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who rose again from the dead. I pray that they would flee and that you'd protect her and they would not be able to return. As I was praying, this woman began to shake. And when I got to the amen of the prayer, she suddenly just collapsed and fell to the ground. And the thought occurred to me when that happened, immediately the thought occurred to me, did she die? I mean, she was so still in that moment, I wondered what happened. But then she sat up, and the first thing she said was, it's so quiet. And then she said, I'm alone. I've been for so long used to hearing these other voices, but now I am alone. And she, she stood up and sat down in the chair, and then she began to remove the jewelry that was around her neck, the necklaces. And she explained as she did so, she said, you know, I've been trying to take these off for a long time, but I've been unable to do so. It's like they were fixed in place. I couldn't remove them. But she said, now I can. I went on to talk with her about a second step I felt she needed to take, and that was to put her trust in Jesus Christ to be her savior. I explained the gospel message to her because it's so important that she have the Holy Spirit come to live inside of her to fill that gap. And, and so I talked about how Jesus came into this world to live a sinless life, to die in our place and for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and if we put our trust in him, we get eternal life. We become children of God. 
adopted into God's family and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And as I explained the message, she realized she'd heard it before when she was growing up, but it never put her trust in Christ. And so then and there, we prayed a prayer and she received Christ as her savior. After we were done talking, some of the college students then went to her house and they gathered up all of her occultic books and witchcraft books. Those are two separate things from the same source, of course, and gathered up all of her paraphernalia related to the occult and witchcraft. And, and then they went out back and they built a bonfire and they burned it all up. And then this young woman was baptized in the church and she began to attend every single week. She was with us for about six months before she quit school or graduated and then she had to move on and I've lost touch with her. I tell this story because as we continue our series, Angels and Demons, I think sometimes when we think about confronting our enemy, the devil, these are the kinds of stories we maybe think about. If you read the gospel accounts, you read stories about how Jesus cast out demons and that type of thing. But I wanna suggest here today that our battle against our enemy, the devil and his demons, is a lot more mundane than that story. It's a lot more practical. The things that we do in our struggle against Satan and his demons, they're just practical things we can do that are much more practical than maybe spiritual, the way we would tend to think about it. Now, we've talked the last few weeks about the fact that the devil works in a variety of different ways. He wants to deceive us, he wants to divide us, he may afflict us with disease if permitted by God. Sometimes he wants to disqualify us from serving him in various ways. He'd love to destroy us even to the point of death. And I realize as we've talked about these things for the last several weeks, it's kind of been dark. I mean, the subject itself is kind of dark. But today we begin to turn the corner. Today we begin to look at the victory that we have through Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we'd like to talk about what I'd call the good angels, the, the uh, guardian angels. But anyway, as we look today at our battle against this evil one, there's one main section in the Bible that I think is the one we need to turn to. It's really the main passage where Paul explains, this is how you handle the devil. This is how you handle the host of demons. It's in this way. And this section of scripture is Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 17. Now today I'd like to mention mainly two things. I've got two takeaways here today, and they might even seem contradictory. The first takeaway is this, that the battle belongs to the Lord. I want us to understand that when it comes to our battle against the evil one, ultimately the battle belongs to the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who defeated Satan and death when he rose again from the dead. But the second takeaway is this, that the battle belongs to us. It's also a battle in which we are involved. And I wanna break these, both of these down just a little bit. Let's talk first of all about the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's begin reading in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, where we read, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Now here's my first point, the battle belongs to the Lord. Our victory over Satan and his host is a battle that we do not fight in our strength. 
Apostle Paul begins here by saying, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. It's the Lord's strength that is not our strength. And it is important to realize this, that he's the one who's able to make us strong, that ultimately our victory over the devil has to do with the fact that we're associated with Jesus Christ, who is the strong one. This is not a battle that we're supposed to be fighting in our own strength. And the reason this is the case is because of the nature of our enemy. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, Paul again described our enemy. He said, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. I've mentioned the last few weeks about this, that scholars are convinced that this represents a, a hierarchy in the demonic kingdom where Satan is very organized and these are various categories of demons. But Paul begins by saying here, our battle is not against flesh and blood. The word battle that's used in this verse is actually carries with it the Greek idea of wrestling, a wrestling match. And so some versions of the Bible even translate this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. A scholar by the name of Thayer explains it this way. It was a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other and which is decided when the victor is able to press and hold down his prostrate antagonist, namely hold him down with his hand upon his neck. And you realize that the nature of this battle is like a wrestling match and it's hand-to-hand combat. And the devil is very, very close to us. Now, I was not much of an athlete when I was growing up I've been involved over the years with a variety of different sports, though, of course, I played basketball and and baseball and other sports. I was never real good at it, but the one sport that I found to be the most difficult of all was wrestling. I wrestled for one year in college. And wrestling for me was like one person using 100% of his effort against another person who was using 100% of his effort. And of course, there's skill involved in everything, but it was a real, real struggle, very intense. I've seen when people were wrestling that some lost their meal on the mat. I've seen where people lost clumps of hair while they were wrestling or a part of their ear or they were bleeding all over the place. And you realize this could be really, really tough. And this is why we need to recognize that we need the strength of the Lord when we're facing these kinds of battles. It's not about us. It's about the strength that the Lord is able to provide. But the second part of this is that the battle belongs to us. Although the ultimate victory is the Lord's, and he even gives us the armor we're gonna read about in a minute. It's called the armor of God, the armor that he provides. Yet there is indeed a part that we play. It is a personal battle, and there are things that we specifically need to do in order to win the battle. Let's continue reading in verse 13. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Paul is using here an analogy of a Roman soldier. In Paul's day, Roman soldiers were known for their discipline and for their skill, and their armor was just absolutely amazing. 
And Paul, of course, when he wrote this to the Ephesians, was a prisoner. And there were Roman soldiers standing right there. And as he looked at the the soldier that was standing there, he realized that each part of the armor served a different purpose. He also realized that every single part of the armor was essential. If you had any missing parts, that you'd be vulnerable in those places. Now, in the Greek language in which this section was written originally, there's one main verb at the beginning before you get to the first four parts of the armor, and that verb is to stand, therefore. In other words, the main command in this section is stand. Stand, therefore. The rest of these parts of the armor, at least the first four, are participles. What I mean by that is they modify the verb. Paul is explaining this is how you stand by putting on these parts of the armor. Now, I want us to understand that these parts of the armor, for the most part, have to do with character. They have to do with very practical things we do in our lives that give us protection against the evil one. So let's talk about the parts of the armor. In Ephesians 6, 14, Paul writes, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. Stand therefore, that's the main command, with truth like a belt around your your waist. I believe that the belt refers to being a person of integrity. The word truth in this verse can be translated integrity. Now let me show you a picture of what the belt would have looked like and all the images I'm using today come from a website called Vroma. Uh, In biblical times, the soldier's belt would hold together parts of the garments, parts of his garments so that he wouldn't get tripped up and they'd also hold part of his armor. But the main purpose of the belt was to free yourself to be able to move. In other words, you'd take your garments and you'd tuck them under the belt so that you wouldn't get all tripped up. The image that comes to my mind here is that of a potato sack race. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but potatoes used to come in these huge sacks, 100 pounds of potatoes, and and kids would sometimes race in these, and it'd just be hilarious to watch them hopping along, and they'd typically fall at a certain point because they didn't have freedom to walk with their legs. And Paul is describing here that we can get tripped up if we're not people of integrity. Dr. Honer explains this part of the armor. He says, the belt of truth refers to a believer's integrity and faithfulness. As a soldier's belt or sash gave ease and freedom of movement, so truth gives freedom with self, others, and God. You see, if there's a disconnect between what we're portraying to other people and what's really true about us, this is an area in which the devil can attack us. And I think this is what David was getting at in Psalm 32 and verse one when he said, how joyful is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. Another way to put this is that we can't have hypocrisy in our lives. Now, none of us are gonna be perfect. But if there are areas where we lack integrity, if there are areas where there are hypocrisy, where we're putting forth one thing, and yet in reality there's this other thing, this is an area in which the devil can attack us. It will eventually trip us up. This is true, by the way, whether we tell a lie or whether we live a lie. In either case, we could find ourselves getting tripped up by the lie, whether it's a lie of our words or a lie of our life. So put on the belt of truth. Then we come to the second piece of the armor. In verse 14, the second half, he says, put on righteousness like armor on your chest. Put on righteousness like armor on 
your chest. Other versions put this, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I think the breastplate here refers to making righteous choices with our lives. The actual way in which this needs to be understood is that the breastplate consists of righteousness. Let me show you a picture, by the way, of what this would have looked like. In biblical times, oftentimes, the breastplate was made of these metal bands that were tied together in the front by these leather straps. They provided a lot of protection. Now, I want us to realize that the righteousness that's referred to here is not salvation. This is not a reference to the righteousness that God gives us when we put our faith in Christ. That's what we call positional righteousness. This is something that's different. This is practical righteousness. This has to do with living rightly. This has to do with making good and right choices in how we deal with other people, how we conduct our affairs, again, with integrity, in the workplace or wherever we are, if there are areas in our lives, secret sins in our lives, things that are not right, these are areas in which the devil can attack us. And so sometimes I think we need to take an inventory of our lives and ask, are there things here that give the devil again a foothold from which he can operate? Even God himself, we read in the Old Testament, moved forward with righteousness as a breastplate in Isaiah 59 and verse 17. We read, he put on righteousness like a breastplate. I see an image of of God who was righteous, but he he goes forward in his righteousness because there are not these other things that can hold him back, keep him from having the victory. Everything he does is good and right. I think, by the way, that this is what Paul was getting at in Acts 24, 16, when he said, I always do my best to have a clear conscience before God and men. So be a person of integrity and be a person of righteousness, but then Paul continues, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Now this one requires a little bit of an explanation. I want us to understand that the word readiness in this verse has the idea of having a solid foundation. It's the Greek word for a foundation. So you remember Paul said, stand firm. And so Paul here is explaining how we stand firm. But if you're standing firmly, you're ready to go. And so we stand in the readiness, and then this version says for the gospel of peace, but most versions of the Bible say from the gospel of peace. I want to suggest that this is a reference to the good news that we are at peace with God. This refers to the peace we have with God and the peace that comes from God that allows us to stand firm in the midst of the battle. A soldier's sandals were bound with thongs around the instep and around the ankle. The interesting thing about the sandals, though, is that sometimes they had nails on the bottom. Here's a picture of what the sandals may have looked like. And you can imagine if you have that, it's, it's kind of like these golf cleats or whatever. They give you a solid footing, a, a solid place to stand. On what are we standing? Well, Paul said the gospel of peace. The word gospel just means good news. We're standing in the good news that we are at peace with God. It's what I think Romans 5.1 is talking about where Paul wrote, therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can understand how this would be important in the midst of the battle because the devil is attacking us. The devil is accusing us. 
And he's saying, well, God doesn't love you and you're not a child of God and we stand in the truth. No, I'm firmly rooted in this truth. I am at peace with God through faith in Christ. I am a child of God. I think it also implies the peace, of course, that God wants to provide us in the midst of the battle. But again, this is something we put on, our confidence in the peace that we have. And we can stand firm in that peace. Paul continues, though, in verse 16. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. What is the shield? Well, this one is pretty clear. We need to maintain our trust, our faith in God and his word. Now, in the Greek language, there were a couple different Greek words for the word shield. One was a Greek word that implied a little shield that would go around your wrist or your arm. The other shield was a big one. It was actually the Greek word for a door. The big shield was four and a half feet tall and two and a half feet wide. Let me show you a picture of it here. And it was shaped like a door, and so it was something that if, if the arrows were coming at you, you could get behind, and it would provide almost 100% protection. When we choose to trust God in the midst of the battle, when we choose to trust what God's word says despite what we're facing, we have this firm standing against the evil one. I think this is kind of what James was getting at in James chapter one. In James one, James was writing about the fact that they were being persecuted and going through a hard time, facing various trials. And James said, if you are facing trials, ask God for wisdom in the midst of that situation. But then he said, you better ask in faith. In verse six of James one, he said, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. The image there that comes to my mind is that of a boat that's just being tossed along wherever the waves want to toss it. And this is what happens to us if we're not firmly moored in our faith, trusting in God in the midst of it, trusting in his word in the midst of it. The circumstance itself will toss us about Now, so far we've talked about the belt, which is integrity, breastplate, which is righteousness, and the sandals that allow us to stand firmly in the shield of faith. But then Paul says we need to take the helmet of salvation. And this is the second verb in this section. I told you the first one is stand firm. The second one is this one, take. Take the helmet of salvation. A better way to understand that word, though, is actually to receive it. This is something that we receive from Christ. What is it we're receiving? Well, I interpret this one to mean that we need to have the assurance of our victory through Christ. In the midst of the battle, it is the assurance of our deliverance. The word salvation just means deliverance. Of course, we know that the helmet is something that protects the mind. And this is not referring to our eternal salvation. That's something we already have. This is something, again, we receive from him in the moment. I think it's a mindset of victory through Christ. Let me show you a picture of what the helmet looked like. Someone has described it this way, that it was made of metal, usually iron. Though there were various styles of helmet, most had a round cap with a ring on top for fastening a plume when on parade. There were hinged cheek pieces, a neck protector in back, and there was no visor. But again, I think this is something that protects the mind. I think we get to the question, in the midst of the battle, are we confident of the victory we have, the salvation that we will ultimately have through Christ, but also the salvation or deliverance we can have in the moment. Another way to understand this one, I think, might be the hope that we have, the assurance. 
of our victory. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, Paul wrote, but since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put the armor of faith and love on our chests and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. I think he's talking about the same thing here. We put on this helmet, protects our mind. It's a helmet related to our deliverance through Christ. <clears throat> now, let me explain why this matters through an illustration. When I was growing up and all the way through high school, really, I wasn't very competitive. When I played sports or whatever, I just was not a competitive person. And I tended to lose a lot, but something changed when I got to college. I, I suppose when I started wrestling, but also in racquetball. I started to have a mindset that I, I can actually win this thing. I can actually defeat this person. And those of you that are involved in sports, you know that many times the battle is won or lost in the mind. If you believe that you're gonna win, if you're confident of the success you're gonna have, it gives you a tremendous amount of power in the midst of that game to fight the battle. And when I began to believe that I had the victory, it changed. I began winning in racquetball and other sports that I would be playing. And I think this is kind of the idea. If we have this mindset, I can't win, I'm being defeated, instead of realizing that the ultimate deliverance has already been provided through Christ and he can help us in the present moment, I don't think we'll be able to stand without that. So take on the helmet of salvation, he says, and then we get to the last piece of the armor, the only offensive part of it, offensive part of it, in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Of course, this one is explained for us. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, let me show you a picture of the sword that would have been used. In biblical times, there were two Greek words for sword, just like with the word shield. There was a Greek word for a long sword that you think of when people are in a sword fight, but there was also a Greek word for a shorter sword that could be six inches long, that short, or as long as 22 inches, and it was a double-edged sword. The one that he's referring to here is the shorter of the two, which immediately you realize then we're in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But we have the victory through the word of God, according to this. The example I think of with this is Jesus himself. When Jesus was tempted, when he was confronted by the devil, what did he do? Time after time, he quoted from the Bible. And this is part of the reason that we encourage you to get in the Bible so much. Get to know God's word because these are things that you hold on to. That when you're in the midst of the battle, you say, yeah, but the, God's word says this. This is what I think about it, but God's word says this. Or this is what I'm tempted to do, but God's word says this. And we end up with the victory because the word of God is really powerful. In Hebrews 4 and verse 11, the author says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. So let me summarize the parts of the armor here. There's the belt of truth or the belt of integrity, walking with integrity, speaking the truth, living the truth, breastplate of righteousness, which has to do with righteous living, sandals, where we're standing firmly in the peace that we have with God and from God, the shield of faith that allow us to extinguish the enemy's darts, the helmet of salvation, the assurance of our salvation, the assurance of our victory, and the sword, which is the word of God. Now, practically, what do we do with this? Well, I wanna encourage you to look at the armor and ask yourself the question, where am I having a gap? Where is there a weakness? Ask yourself questions like, which parts of these armor apply to me? 
Ask yourself, am I relying on Christ's strength? Am I walking in integrity? Am I making right choices? Are there things in my life that the devil can attack? Am I standing in the peace that I have from God and with, with God? Am I walking in faith here and trusting despite my circumstances? Am I confident in the victory I have through Christ? Am I using the word of God in battle? Of course, the battle belongs to the Lord, but it also belongs to us. Now, this time we're gonna sing a song for you. And it's a song that really summarizes this because it's a song titled, On My Side. And it demonstrates that in the midst of the battle, the Lord is on our side. And then I wanna come back with just a short summary and closing prayer. surrounded on all sides when anxious thoughts come to my mind I remember where my help comes from you're on my side and I won't find a in anything but you, you are my shield, my constant protection. There is no battle I fight alone. No matter what may come, I know I'm never on my own. Your promise is sure you will never let me
lost in protection There is nobody alive I'd alone No matter what may come I know I'm never on my own Your promise is sure You will never let me go Greater is he that is in us than he who is in this world. We need to cling to Jesus Christ. When I was growing up, uh, just on a couple of occasions, my friends and I played a game called King of the Mountain. In this game, you try to be the person standing on top of a hill while other people try to knock you down. If you're the one standing on the hill, your goal is to just be firmly planted Get yourself in a secure position where you can't be knocked down. And if others are coming against you, of course, their goal is to get a foothold on that mountain and to try to get in a place where they're able to push you down. I encourage us to, first of all, examine, am I standing firm in Christ and his word and, and the peace that he provides? But second, are there areas in our lives where the enemy can get a foothold and where he can attack us? The victory belongs to the Lord, but there's a part that we play. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the fact that you give us everything we need to win the battle. The battle belongs to you, and I thank you, Lord, for the practical steps that we can take where the devil wants to attack us, but he really can't get a, a foothold if we don't give it to him. That he has no authority over our lives. He may be powerful, but has no authority. And help us, the Lord, to be people who are wearing the, the belt of integrity and that breastplate of righteousness and standing in the peace we have. And and the faith that you provide for us and, and this mindset of victory that we have through Christ and the word of God that is so powerful and effective. Help us, Lord, to apply these parts of the armor as we face these battles in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.